Well, it's our custom as a church uh, to celebrate the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of the month. So we have before us the elements on the table, the bread and the cup that point us to Christ. Uh, We do this uh, because Jesus commanded it, but for us as a church family to gather around the family table, so to speak, and to acknowledge our participation in the new covenant. But when we do this, I want you to know we... uh, organize the service in such a way to help people focus on that from the beginning to the end. So it's not just something that's tacked on at the end, but even what I say now I hope will help you to prepare your heart to be able to come to the table and participate here. Reading the letter to the Galatians is a little like stepping into the middle of a conversation. You've undoubtedly had that experience where you uh, have come up upon people talking to or more people in a group and, and you join into it, but it takes you a moment or a few moments to get your bearings as to what they're talking about and why they're talking about it. And Galatians is very much like that because it's different from all of the other 13 letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. Um, his other letters are written to individuals and to churches like this one, but in them, after an introduction and greetings that is similar to what are here, he usually goes into what is called by interpreters a prayer wish. And it means that it's a paragraph, sometimes just a verse or two and sometimes several verses, that indicates what Paul is praying for the people who are reading the letter. So it's not a prayer directed to God, but it's here's what I'm asking God to do in you and for you and through you. And unlike the This letter begins very abruptly with a statement of rebuke. He says after the greeting, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And and so we have to ask the question, what in the world is he talking about? Why is he talking about it? Because they obviously understand and he understands what it is he's writing about. And we have to figure it out. Now, fortunately, the letter itself gives a good idea of the content and the topics that he's going to talk about. And through the centuries, a lot of interpreters have done a lot of spade work to get down to understand what the issue is in the letter and why he's writing to them so strongly. And uh, it's pretty clear once you take apart the New Testament a little bit and try to put it together and find out its context. So I need to begin by asking you for uh, a few minutes or five minutes or so to kind of explain the context in which this is found. This is a map, and uh, because all of us here, I think, are Americans and we don't have any idea of geography in the world, um, let me just explain to you briefly where, where you're at. Down here is Jerusalem, which is where it presently is in present-day Israel. And this up here are the countries of what is now uh, Jordan and Syria. These are the names of the Roman uh, provinces in the time of the Apostle Paul. And this right here is the Mediterranean. Above this, this is really a peninsula that is right here. It is called the Anatolian Peninsula. It's now Turkey. Turkey is the majority of the Anatolian, or actually all of the Anatolian Peninsula. So um, the Apostle Paul is from this city right here in Tarsus. He was a Syrian or Cilician by birth. He was raised there, but at some point in his life, he was moved down to uh, Jerusalem where he studied under the most famous uh, first century rabbi named Gamaliel, and Paul himself became a rabbi in the Jewish faith. We uh, know, at least most people today, interpreters, 
except that Jesus died on the cross on April 3rd, 33 A.D. Could have been in 30 A.D. There's debate there, and it doesn't really matter for our purposes. But in, in uh, following that reckoning of 33 A.D., the Apostle Paul was probably converted to Christ at the end of that year, towards the end of 33. So not too long after the death and the resurrection of Christ. Oh, there's much we wish we knew about his life, though he implies in 2 Corinthians that he had some knowledge of Jesus when he was on the earth. He may have heard him speak, being a rabbi uh, in Jerusalem at that time. Uh, but at any rate, he was very much against the Christians until he was traveling on behalf of the high priest from Jerusalem up to Damascus, Syria. And on a road on the way to Damascus, he was confronted by Jesus himself in a vision, and he was converted to faith in Christ. What happened then is that he took uh, uh, three years that we don't know exactly what he was doing before he went back to Jerusalem the first time. He speaks of that in the book of Galatians, his first visit to Jerusalem. And then he lived probably in the region of Nabatea, what he calls Arabia, for 14 years after his conversion uh, uh, until he went to Jerusalem the second time. And uh, the Apostle Paul becomes one of the most famous people, obviously, in the New Testament. Now, what's important to understand is that when this letter opens, this right here, Antioch in Syria, that was called Antioch and the Orantes, there were nine different cities called Antioch in the Roman Empire. Antioch on the Orantes was one of the most famous cities in the ancient world. It was beautiful. It was spacious. It had up to half a million people living there at this point. And the church in Antioch became the most important church in the first century of the Christian era. It eclipsed the church in Jerusalem. And you might wonder, well, how could a church eclipse the mother church in Jerusalem? But it's very clear why that could happen. After the death of Christ, and even surrounding the death of Christ, was this intrigue regarding the political relationship between the Jewish people in Judea and the Roman Empire. That only got worse. Jewish nationalism became stronger. They began to oppose the Roman rules that were being passed on them as one of the provinces in the empire. And eventually, in 70 AD, the Romans came in and destroyed the temple. And many of the Jews were scattered at that point. Later in 130 AD or 131, they destroyed the entire city of Jerusalem in an attempt to eradicate Judaism. So there were a lot of problems right after the death of Christ for the next several years dealing with the political, cultural situation in, Jew in uh, Jerusalem. And the church in Jerusalem suffered under that. The second reason why Antioch became so important is that Antioch was the wave of the future. What I mean is that it apparently was started from a Jewish synagogue, and it contained both Jewish people and Gentiles. And the relationship between the two becomes important in most of the New Testament letters, and it's recorded in the book of Acts. At first, Christianity was just a sect of Judaism, and was considered that way in Jerusalem until around 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. But Jerusalem was made up entirely of Jewish people. However, when you went up to, uh, to Antioch, there would be many Jews and many Gentiles. They had to figure how to get along together, and that becomes the topic of uh, the book. Now, um, in about 47 AD, we know that the Apostle Paul made the church in Antioch his home church. 
And he and Barnabas were two teachers there, and we're told that somewhere around 47, the Apostle Paul was called by God to go and plant churches, and he was then recognized, he and Barnabas, by the leaders of the Jerusalem church, Acts 13, verse 1, and they were officially commended or sent out to go and do what God had called them to do. And what they did was they went on a missionary journey called the First Missionary Journey, one of three recorded in the book of Acts. They started in Antioch, went down by foot probably to this Seleucia Pieria, and uh, took a boat to the island of Cyprus to Salamis, then preached there and preached their way through as they walked to Paphos, and then took a boat and went up to, went up to what is now the southern coast of Turkey. They landed at Perga. They went up to Antioch in Pisidia. And from that city, where we records they preached the gospel, they went to Iconium, to Lystra, to Derbe. And Acts 13 and 14 tells us about the preaching of the gospel and the forming of churches in each of these places. And in order to set the context, I want to read in Acts 14 what happened at that point. Now, if you have a Bible, uh, I would encourage you to uh, turn to this. I believe it's on page 923 if you pick up a Bible on share around you. Keep your finger in Galatians. We're going to go back there. Acts 14, beginning in verse 21. The the missionary journey is recorded in 13 and 14, and this records what happened at the end of the journey. Acts 14, verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city, that is Derby, um, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, and to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So they formed fully functioning churches in each of these cities in the province of Galatia. And then it says, verse 24, then... They passed through Poseidon and came to Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. Now, the map here is actually a little bit incorrect. They went from Antioch and Poseidon back to Perga, preached the word, then went over to Italia, and from there sailed all the way back to Antioch. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From where they, there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Now that verse, verse 28, is the point where Galatians occurs. The book of Galatians is written. In that time period described by, they remained no little time, for some length of time, with the disciples in Antioch. They were back in their home church on furlough, so to speak, and before The second missionary journey opens up. There's going to be a huge problem among all of the churches that will require in Acts 15 a meeting in Jerusalem for the leaders, the apostles and the elders of the mother church to speak about a specific problem. And it's the same problem that's described in the book of Galatians. In fact, before you turn back to Galatians, let me just read the next verse, the beginning of chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas are back in the church in Antioch, and it says, but some men came down from Judea, that means from Judea, up in a mountainous region, down to Antioch, uh, 
They came to Antioch and were teaching the brothers and sisters, we would say today, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And turn now to Galatians chapter 1. And it's evident that Paul is astonished because the exact same problem is occurring he has heard among these churches that he has just started. In fact, it's presently going on, verse 7. There are some who trouble you, present tense, who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So the problem that's being referred to in this passage is um, Paul saying that there is only one unique gospel message and everything else is counterfeit. These people coming and teaching you right now, seeking to get you to move in a different direction, they're telling you something that isn't true. There's only one unique God-given message that is called the gospel or the good news. There's only one kind of good news. Everything else is not gospel. So look again, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, in English, we have a word that we use, and we use it in two completely different ways, but we don't often think about it, even though we know when we're using it and why. It's the word another. Another can mean another of the same kind, or it can mean another of a different kind. In Greek, there are two words, and they're both used in this passage. Another of a different kind is heteros, and another of the same kind is alos. And, and so what he says here is that um, I am astonished that you are turning to another gospel, Another of a different kind, translated in my Bible, a different gospel. Not that there is another one, alas. There is not another of a different kind, of the same kind. There's only one true gospel. Anything else is a counterfeit, is what he's saying. It's like if a hostess gives you an apple and you eat it and, she, and you say, I would like another fruit, you probably mean, I would like another apple. However, if she comes to you and says, would you like another, and you say, would you like some more fruit, and you say, I I want another fruit, you use exactly the same words, but you mean, no, I don't want an apple, I want something different from an apple. And, And that's what he's doing here, he's saying, you're turning to something that is completely different, because there's really not another message but the one that God revealed through Jesus, It's completely unique. There's nothing else like it. Everything else is not gospel. It's comparing apples with oranges. Everything else is not good news from God. Now, it's commonly taught today, and all of us are aware of this. If you're a student, you would imbibe this in the classroom in many different ways. If you're watching television, you will see it in many different ways on television shows, and especially on talk shows and things like that. It's commonly said today that Christianity is not inclusive enough. We're not tolerant enough. And that idea is based on the belief that Christian faith is just one of many great religions in the world. There are a few great religions that have been around for a long time. And what we are often taught is that all these religions teach about how to have a relationship with God. Christianity is just one of them. Ours happens to be the one that 
came out of the Western world like Europe and it came to the United States. It's a Western concept, Western ways of understanding God, who he is, and that kind of thing. But there are other ways of thinking in the world, Hinduism, which is Eastern, and Buddhism, which is Eastern, and Islam, which is Middle Eastern. There are all these different ideas, and they're all great religions. They just arose in different parts of the world because there were different understandings about the basic way that life is put together and how to think of God and that sort of thing. That is very commonly believed. In fact, I'm convinced that many people who identify themselves as Christians today in our country have this basic belief that we are part of one of many different great religions. They are all pathways to God. Ours may be important to us, but others are important to other people. And as interesting as that is and how much it it does make sense in our own general belief system in the United States at the beginning of the 21st century, you need to understand that is not the perspective of the Apostle Paul. It's not the perspective of Moses or of David, uh, not even of Jesus and the apostles. They would never have thought in those terms. For one thing, Paul, when he writes this letter, is not going to refer to anyone who is from a Western European nation. He's referring to people who are from uh, what we now think of as Syria, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Turkey, Georgia. I mean, these are places completely unlike Western Europe in every way. Western Europe at this point in time was made up of warring primitive tribes, mostly of Goths and Franks, which became Germans and French. And uh, there were no Western nations. There was no Western viewpoint specifically. And secondly, you have to understand the Christian movement was by its very nature and its birth distinctively um, Eastern or what we would say now Middle Eastern in its mindset. It started and spread first in Judea and what is now Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, these countries, that's where it first spread and across Turkey where the most famous of the early churches were found. It um, would have been adhered to by people who were darker skinned than most of us in this room, who thought in ways totally different from the way that we think, and they did not hold Western values as we now think of them. But what's even more important than those two simple facts is that the message that they presented was completely unique, and they regarded it as being something that, by its very nature, excluded it from being simply one of the ways of thinking about how getting, we can get to God. The, the gospel is presented in the New Testament as God's own distinct way of reconciling people to himself. It's God-revealed. It's not something that we came up with in any way. Now, let me uh, describe the message using these words. This is a simple description of the New Testament message. It does use words from the New Testament, though there's no sentence that uh, says it in exactly this form. But this is the basic message of the gospel according to the Apostle Paul and Jesus It would be defined this way. We were brought into a relationship with God by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, alone. Now, that last word is very important. You have to underline it in your thinking. It means that God reached out to us in the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, 
who had existed for all eternity past as God, stepped out of eternity and into time. He assumed a human nature, was born as a Jewish baby in um, Galilee of uh, a virgin woman. He was raised, and in adulthood there, he was acknowledged to be the Messiah. In fact, as predicted at the end of the Old Testament, a person came with a prophetic ministry, John the Baptist, who came to introduce the Messiah and call people to repentance, and Jesus himself went and was baptized. The baptism of John the Baptist was for repentance, signifying that a person was turning away from his sins, and Jesus had no sins to turn away from, but it's made clear in the Bible he was baptized in order to identify himself as the Messiah of the Jewish people as the one who had been predicted in the Old Testament. He identified himself with his people and their sin, even though he had no sin of his own. We're told in the Gospels that he taught 12 individuals called the apostles for at least three years. And at the end of that time, he died on a cross at the instigation of the religious leaders and by the act of the Roman government. They put him on a cross, he died, he was buried in a tomb of a rich man, which had been predicted in Isaiah, uh, that I, in Isaiah that he would be buried in a tomb of a rich man. He was seen by his followers for 40 days after that, and then he ascended to the right hand of God. The Bible says he's now there awaiting that time uh, when his kingdom, he's reigning from his throne there, waiting that time when his kingdom will be fulfilled on this earth. Now, what happened at that point is described in the book of Acts. His followers went out, and they began to preach that in all these things, he had fulfilled what God predicted the Messiah would do. When you read the Gospels, it's rather clear why Jesus is dying. But what they did is they took together this message about Jesus dying and Old Testament prophecies, and they indicated that these things were the fulfillment of the promise that the Messiah would die in the place of sinful human beings. And so they began to go out and preach that everyone who trusts in Jesus' death is restored to relationship with God. In other words, it wasn't just the fact that Jesus died, but it was the significance of that death as a death in the place of sinners upon which people were called to believe. And now all who trust in him have the forgiveness of sins, a restored relationship with God solely because of what Jesus did. That's the gospel. We are brought into relationship with God by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now, that final word alone is important. As I said, it's the key word because it's there to distinguish it from any other understanding of how to reach God. Because if you take off the word alone, you leave open the possibility that it is through that, but there may be something else that you have to add to it in order to complete it. And what the Galatians were accepting might be worded in this way. We are brought into a relationship with God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ plus something. Not alone. That's really important, but something has to be added to it. Those who were troubling the young Galatian churches, they were distorting the gospel of Christ. They were adding something to faith. They said to the Galatians, it's good that you believed in Jesus. And what God wants you to do now is he wants you to add to that becoming Jewish in order to complete your experience of God. They weren't just 
saying, no, Jesus didn't die for sinners, and, you know, we don't believe that. We believe in the law of Moses. They were saying, yes, we accept that Jesus is really important, and what he did was important, and Jesus is like God reaching out to us and doing something for us, Jesus dying for our sins. But what we have to do is we have to complete that by reaching out from our side to God, and in their case, what they were teaching clearly is you need to identify yourself as a follower of God through circumcision, if you're a male, and then you need to keep the dietary laws and observe the festivals of the Old Testament. And those things are all talked about in this letter. At its heart, it was simply an attempt uh, to add some requirement to faith in Christ. When you add some requirement to faith in Christ, you add some obedience to it, something you have to do for God, you change the whole meaning of the message. It is not that God has accomplished our salvation through what Jesus did. It's that God has reached out and he's offered something in Jesus, and we have to do our part in order to complete the transaction. In fact, that's what you do. You make salvation a transaction between God and us. Salvation's dependent on some cooperation on our side, and that's all that religion is. In Christianity, in this view, God reaches out through us through, for us through Jesus. But in other religions, God has reached out in other ways. He's done his side. He sent a prophet who taught certain things. And what we have to do on our side is we have to complete the transaction by reaching out and keeping the rituals, obeying the commands, whatever it is. That's how religion functions. You make salvation dependent on some cooperation in which God does his part, which is Jesus, and we add our part our response, and when you put God's contribution and our contribution together, you get salvation. And Scripture tells us, and this book tells us very clearly, the book of Galatians, that any attempt to do that is in the end simply going to make Christianity one of the great religions of the world. It's no longer unique. It's just another way of reaching God. You might note that Paul is quite intolerant in this passage. Not only does he not begin with a prayer wish, he begins with a rebuke. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. In chapter 3, he says, oh, foolish Galatians, like you fools. It's not very nice. You get to chapter 5, and he's talking about people thinking they have to be circumcised to be saved. And he said, I I wish that those who who think that's important would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. And it's really rude. I mean, what he's saying is, if you think cutting off a piece of flesh is good, cut the whole thing off. He's not nice at all. I mean, he's crude. You see, Paul could be quite magnanimous, and that's what makes this letter so interesting. This is his earliest letter, but you read other letters, you realize that Paul did not demand that everyone conform to what he felt lifestyle ought to be like. For example, he made it clear that it would be very difficult for Jewish people like himself to not obey the Jewish dietary laws. I mean, for us, when you hear about the dietary laws, like not eating meat and milk at the same time, meal, you know, I mean, not eating shellfish, pork, all kinds of things, you think that would be very burdensome. But if you were a person who from earliest childhood was raised that way, who liked to eat that way, it would be an intolerable thought to give that up. And Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and other places, there was no need for people to stop observing the dietary laws 
as long as they understood that it had nothing to do with their acceptance with God. It had nothing to do with their acceptance with God. God would accept Gentiles who didn't observe the dietary laws on the same basis on which he accepted Jewish people. He would accept them both through faith in Jesus Christ. The laws, the festivals, even though they were followed for generations by Jewish Christians, they didn't have any, anything to do with salvation. Paul himself, we read in the book of Acts, voluntarily observed some of the Jewish dietary laws and things like that. But that's different from demanding that people must add something to Christ to complete their gospel experience. That's what these people were in danger of accepting. That undermined the uniqueness of the gospel as the God-ordained message. Paul was completely intolerant of anything that would add to the gospel that would not accept the word alone, faith in Christ alone, and they would add something else. He felt that was worth standing up for. And it's worth our standing up for today. Too many Christians are not clear on the gospel message. They, they think that there's something that they need to do to add to God. In fact, in one sense, that is so rooted in the human heart that the nature of the Christian life is moving from point to point of understanding more deeply, oh, it's all tied up in Jesus. It's not tied up in me and what I do. I want to obey God. God calls me to obedience by his spirit. He makes many changes in my life. But all those changes, no matter how great, do not add one thing to what I have by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ alone. And people don't understand the uniqueness of the gospel, the message, and we're too afraid to stand for it because we risk being called intolerant or narrow-minded. But the fact is, Christian faith is not one of the great religions. Not the true Christian faith. It is completely unique. It is unlike any other way of thinking. It is based on sovereign grace, in which God, in his mercy, reaches out to us. And we are told that even the faith is a gift from God by which we come to trust in Christ. And that's what we revel in. That's what we sing songs about. That's what we read in Scripture we know that we are free to serve God without guilt and fear because it's not tied up in us and what we do. It's tied up in Jesus and what he did. His work on the cross when he gave up the ghost, the spirit, we're told in John chapter 19 when he said the words, it is finished. Either those words are completely true, all that is required for the redemption of human beings is finished. For all who believe, it is finished. Or else there's something that we have to add to it. Because in the gospel, God promised to call us by his spirit, to enable us to meet all of the gospel requirements of faith and understanding. We have complete assurance that we are free today. And that is why we come to him with freedom, to worship him. And we come to his table to receive the elements to remind us of that truth. Let's rejoice in that this morning as we pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you that you tell us in your word that we are free in Christ, that he has accomplished everything that we need to do, everything that was required to be restored to you. And we know there's so much that you do in our lives. 
We know even that as we respond to you and we follow you and we learn to obey and we repent of former ideas as we move through the Christian life, we, we, we understand more deeply that, yes, he died even for those things. We don't atone for previous mistakes by having a good attitude now that we were set free. We belong to you only because of Jesus and what he did. We thank you for that. We pray that this morning as we come to your table and we take these elements that you would, in fact, give to each person that full assurance of faith. We ask this in Jesus' name.